one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Scott, after two years of being our fearless leader, you abandoned us last week and we were rudderless. I mean, I thought I did a great job, but still, I resented having to actually put any work at all into prepping for Ratset. How could you? I, I don't blame you. I resent you for it every week. Uh, but, but the great irony is that I was actually manning a rudder as, as I was leaving you rudderless. An actual rudder. On a sailboat in the Caribbean. And it was wonderful. Wow. Uh, vacation is great. I'm not going to lie. This is the first real vacation I've taken from this podcast, at least in a very long time. Why did but, you come uh, it back? Nice. It's a fair, it gets very Because he heard me host and realized that it was, <laughs> exactly. it was a rough situation. It was a bad situation, guys. You know, I like to think I'm bringing a part of the Caribbean back with me. Listeners can't see this, but I have one single dreadlock hanging down my forehead, of course, right now. <laughs> I've been describing everything as I read for the last 72 hours. So really, you know, the Caribbean is with us all throughout it's the It's not year. problematic at all. Yeah. Not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Glad to be back with you after a week away. And I'm here with one of my other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. The stalwart, never abandons Ratsec co-host. That's me. Sure. Sure, buddy. <laughs> Not in the last three weeks, anyway. <laughs> prior to that, several times. Several times and quite regularly. That's, that's okay. Yeah, but in the last three weeks, my attendance has been exceptional. Pretty good three weeks. I'll give you that. Uh, we uh, are sadly without our third regular co-host, Quinta, who is on the road, uh, bringing her show on the road, so to speak, uh, or I think on vacation, more realistically. But we are thrilled to have brought in the big guns, Ratsec 1.0, co-host Emeritus, Shane Harris. Shane, thank you for joining us today. Hello. It's so nice to be back. I'm just excited to sit back with the boys and have a little podcast episode. Exactly. I've I've undone my top button of my pants. I cracked a beer. I'm ready. I got baseball in the background. He's got a no girls allowed with a Z instead of an S hung outside the clubhouse. Just one girl. No girls. One can come in. That's it. No girls. These are the rules. Millhouse rules. Well, we are thrilled to have you back, Shane, as always, with us to talk over the week's news, because we've got some big news here to talk over in what we are calling the Lowdown Dirty Shane edition in your honor, because you are here to give us the lowdown on one of these stories, which you have been very involved in reporting on, Mm -hmm. along with a couple other stories that I'm sure have been on your mind as they have been on our mind. Mm -hmm. Our first topic for the week, Flight of the Valkyries. Recently leaked U.S. intelligence reports allege that Wagner Group Yevgeny Prigozhin, did I get that right? I think I got that right. Yevgeny yeah. Prigozhin? Yeah. Prigozhin or Prigozhin. Mm-hmm. That was pretty good. Uh, who has privately and publicly feuded with the Russian military leadership in recent weeks and even threatened to pull his mercenary troops from the conflict, has been in contact with Ukrainian intelligence and offered to share Russian troop positions in exchange for concessions around the disputed city of Bakhmut. Is Prigozhin trying to find a path to retreat? What do his actions tell us about the conflict? Topic two, Jerkie boy. Twitter owner Elon Musk has come under criticism for the company's latest bad call, censoring certain content at the request of the Erdogan government in Turkey just prior to national elections there. How should Twitter have responded to the demands of Turkish officials, and how has Musk's erratic leadership affected the company's approach to such issues? And topic three, bootlichter. CNN and its CEO, Chris Licht, are experiencing blowback from the decision to host a town hall with former President Donald Trump before an audience of his supporters, at which he repeated an array of lies about the 2020 election results, the recent judgment finding him liable for sexual battery, and his potential legal exposure for retaining classified documents, among other items. Was CNN in the wrong? How should it handle Trump and other candidates? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. Sure. So to give just a little bit of context to the reporting on Prigozhin. So the Wagner Group, which again is is this mercenary outfit 
that is playing a surprisingly large role in Russia's war in Ukraine and is run by uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, who I sort of still can't get over this backstory, started as Putin's caterer and then somehow parlayed that into you know, basically a almost fully fledged alternative military because, you know, anything goes. Sure. As you do. Troops got to eat. <laughs> troops, yeah. Troops got to eat um, and shoot people. So uh, his troops have been at the center of the Russian forces uh, that are t- trying to keep the city of Bakhmut, which is you know, vaguely in between Donetsk and Luhansk in the Donbass region and eastern Ukraine. It's been the site of some of the most Fierce fighting over the last several months, been real, you know, block by block urban warfare, very high casualties on both sides, particularly on Russia's side, particularly for the the Wagner group. And he has increasingly been expressing his frustrations at the lack of support that he feels that he is getting from the uh, overall Russian military, particularly in terms of supplies. You know, his troops have never been the best. It's kind of an odd assortment of some very uh, experienced uh, veterans, plus appears to be random prisoners that he has plucked out of Russian prisons. Combine that with sort of really high level of casualties that they're experiencing. And Prigozhin, in a way that's, I think, almost admirable, has really been trying to stand up for his troops and and, uh, get more resources. And the way he's done that is by making more and more sort of vituperative attacks on the Russian military establishment. And increasingly, and sort of most notably, even some veiled references to Putin himself, though he has claimed that uh, his his, uh, references to Zedushka, which is Russian for grandpa, actually did not refer to Putin, though that is how he is called often in Russia, but to some uh, military commanders. And then the uh, report from last week that is kind of the center and the most dramatic piece of information is that there's U.S. intelligence reporting that suggests that uh, Prigozhin has actually reached out to the Ukrainians to uh, offer them information about the location of regular Russian military troops elsewhere in Ukraine in exchange for them backing off from Bakhmut, something, again, the Prigozhin has denied, because, of course, if it were true, that would be just straight up treason that probably even Putin, who generally likes having all these different centers of power in his uh, military, uh, probably because it makes it harder for the military to overthrow him, uh, even Putin would probably have to respond somewhere there. And then all this is also happening in the midst of a Ukrainian counteroffensive that has been many months in the making. It's sort of ramping up right now. It's already seeing some gains. Um, so you know, both at a micro level in terms of the Wagner troops in Bakhmut and then sort of at a macro level in terms of Russia's general campaign in Ukraine, Russia's seen better days. So Shane, let me start with you. You've been doing a lot of reporting on this. Do you think that Prigozhin is really reaching out to the Ukrainians to get them to fire on other Russian troops? Well, I think that the, that he did call them and make such an offer. I don't have any doubt about that for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> you know, one is it's reflected in these intelligence documents, which so far have all proved to be accurate in terms of what signals intelligence are actually you know saying was captured. I mean, so that he called and made the offer. Yes, I mean, we confirm with Ukrainian or Ukrainian official that he did that. The question is whether he was serious about it. I think, you know, was he was this some kind of information operation or a head fake? You know, did Putin know he was doing this? Is it some kind of trap? Ukrainians I talked to allowed that he could have been trying to play them. Uh, and U.S. officials also were skeptical, you know, about whether this was really a real offer or not. So there's a little bit of, you know, a, a difference of opinion. But that he's in touch, Prigozhin, with Ukrainian intelligence, everyone agrees that even he acknowledged that, you know, kind of, you know, in his weird rambly way as he does when he responds to journalists' questions by posting messages on on his Telegram channel. And the Ukrainians have acknowledged that too. So the question really is whether or not he was actually so desperate that he would have truly done this. The Ukrainians have said in, in our conversations with them, look, we don't trust this guy. You know, even if this were a genuine deal, we wouldn't take it because, you know, we're not going to negotiate like that with the enemy. And also, you know, the Ukrainians are not, I think, what would exactly be the incentive for them to pull back from 
Bakhmut, where, you know, it has been, as you said, Alan, like this block by block fighting, but neither side appears ready to, to give it up. And even though U.S. officials have been privately telling and kind of publicly in many instances, the Ukrainians like, look, Bakhmut is not of strategic importance. This has become basically a battle of wills. Um, so, you know, you're, they're not going to lose the war by giving up. So, you know, to me, what what is clear, and I don't think there's any denying this, is that Prigozhin's in a desperate situation. Um, he is feeding troops into a meat grinder. He is, you know, trying to empty the prisons to stock his ranks. Uh, he's not, as far as I can tell, using any of the fighters that he has deployed all around Africa, which might be more skilled and have, probably have absolutely zero interest in going to Ukraine just to die. It's it's pretty horrible for for his forces there. And if, you know, he were to make good on some of the threats that he has voiced to pull back his own forces from Bakhmut as basically an FU to the to the Russian military, they'd be screwed. I mean, they really need him. <laughs> and it's so it's there's this fascinating kind of battle playing out between Prigozhin and people like Garazimov and Shoigu who run the Russian military and the Ministry of Defense. And against all of that backdrop, you know, I think it's not implausible that Prigozhin might try and cut some kind of a side deal with the Ukrainians, with whom, you know, he's been in touch with and apparently had meetings with in Africa, uh, you know, talking secretly to, you know, Kirill Budanov, who is the head of Russian-Ukrainian military intelligence. I mean, like, you know, Prigozhin is like, He's playing, he's playing all the angles. Like this is not somebody who is in the chain of command to Putin. His loyalty is clearly to himself. And like, that's just another interesting facet of like, that is the force that is fighting in Russia are these like backfighting, you know, backstabbing, um, mercenary political actors who, you know, half the time you look at Prokosh, I mean, just looking at him, he looks like a comic book villain. Right. And, you know, and it's make, making these rambling messages and like shouting F you to the defense. Ministry. Can you imagine if the American military were behaving in this way? Like Eric Prince was out there on the streets being like, Lloyd Austin, go fuck yourself. I mean, this is crazy. But like, that's the military that they took to war. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the side of Douglas MacArthur that we <laughs> that has yet to be written about. <laughs> the secret history of Douglas MacArthur. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Well, so let me actually ask you about your sense of one aspect of this, Shane. I think it's really interesting. I know you've been following Wagner Group in a couple of different domains through different lines of reporting. And so it's it's kind of an interesting question here where there's obvious infighting between Prigozhin and Russian military leadership of conventional forces, right? They're both in these meat grinders. He's got very open grievances about the fact that they are not giving him supplies, which it appears presumably they're responsible for ammunition yes. supply logistics change. That makes sense, right? They were there. They had logistics chains in place before they brought in the Wagner troops early on. Um, so it's not like Africa with small deployments. We know that they have the regular military, at least according to some reports I've seen, uh, although I, I haven't don't recall the exact details, but if I recall correctly, are actually pulling from the same pools of inmates and other folks that Progozin was recruiting Wagner troops from to throw more people into the meat grinder. It's a brutal situation. They're obviously at loggerheads here. But does that translate into distance from Putin? Um, You know, it is a... It strikes me as a little bit of these these crazy stories when we read histories of the Soviet Union or other really extremely personality centered authoritarian governments, where you get these incredible, you know, cabinet Politburo internal politics that are brutal and cutthroat because there are no institutional limits around you know what you can accomplish is all about your appeal to this one individual and jockeying around that expression because I I could easily easily see this playing into Prigozhin trying to make a better case to Putin vis a vis the regular forces saying you need to give listen to me more in this area um, maybe that's because he wants to protect his troops or his business better maybe it's because he actually thinks he'd be better at it militarily although it's hard to buy it. But he's somebody who's so reliant on Putin. Again, I mean, he basically was Putin's caterer, and he's now evolved into this role. And you know, if Putin says, "Well, no, you can no longer pull from Russian bases, or you can no longer use you know Russian veteran networks to recruit from," you know, it seems like Prigozhin's going to be out of business pretty quick. Um, so his the extent to which, unlike, for example, like Ramzan Kadyrov, right, the Chechen leader who has a separate sort of base of operations, a separate political entity that he leads, where he gives has a little bit of a center of gravity independent of Putin. I'm not sure Prigozhin does. So so how does this all fit in his relationship 
between other Russians and then between him and Putin. The, yeah, those are all great points. And I think, you know, one way of thinking about this is if you look at, and these, these discord leaks, as we call them, have a lot to say about this, Prigozhin's operations in Africa and the deals that the Wagner Group makes to provide security to African countries in exchange for things like, you know, mineral extraction rights. I mean, he's building an empire in Africa and building power bases there. And you see him really building up Wagner as a force that is distinct from for, for, from Russia. And what I read in that, I think another analyst probably do too, is that that is evidence of you know him being his own man and perhaps even realizing that maybe he's hitched himself to you know a loser with this you know war in ukraine but also to putin you know it's interesting as you know they they're close still i think he's still considered an ally of of putin i think that there's been some distance in that relationship i mean we were careful not to call him i think we called him an ally of putin in the story and we chose not to call him a close ally because it seems from our reporting that there's distance growing between them. And, you know, and there has been speculation, I think, kind of informed by the, the things that Prigozhin has said publicly about military leadership in Russia, that maybe he would want to be the Ministry of Defense chief, or he'd want to sort of take over. I, I think so there's, a, there's question marks around this. But like, what's so interesting to me is like, you see Prigozhin in so much of his criticism saying like, this war has gone sideways right? Like we're losing. He's not saying that, but he's like, you know, the, these guys who are running the war are making the wrong decisions. You know, he, you know, others have tried to telegraph that to Putin as well. I don't know that he has gone against Putin, which I think is probably one of the reasons why there's some skepticism in the US and in Ukraine about whether or not he genuinely meant it, that he would, you know, do this deal with Ukraine and swap troop locations. The mere fact though, that he floated it, is just so interesting to me. Like, I don't know what the game is there, but again, like, you know, to your points, if that were a genuine offer, then yeah, I would say there's been some pretty serious split um, with Putin. And, and you see also in other instances where, you know, there are places where he seems to be talking Prigozhin to the Ukrainians. And it's, it's not entirely clear because these documents sometimes are just capturing like what was said and they're not doing analysis, but where you almost wonder if he's trying to plan some kind of out for himself. Like, does he think the Ukrainians are going to rescue him or would take him in? Uh, I, I don't know, but I mean, it, it, he is clearly playing a lot of angles and it, it's fascinating because these documents give you a, a window into that. Shane, that actually just leads me in just a related question about this is that, of course, the sourcing from this, at least kind of the lead source, although I imagine you've done taken a variety of steps to verify it in a variety of ways, was part of this Discord leaks, presumably from uh, private, I believe, Texera, mm -hmm. uh, who was involved in leaking, or Airman Texera, involved in leaking some of these online. Do we have a sense about how long this story has been out there and known to the Russians versus to us? This is the first we're hearing of in the last three or four days since you're reporting. But is this something where it's baked in enough to the situation on the ground in Ukraine and Russia that if we were expecting it to really shift Pergozin's position, that would have already happened? Or do we think this is coming to the Russians' attention for the first time in the last few days as well, or maybe not too much in advance of that. I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. If you if you look at the you know these these documents capture a moment in time when these conversations were happening, and the and the offer that's reflected in one of these documents, which also says it wasn't the first time he made it, was late January of this year. Whether the Russians knew something, you know, I I, I don't know. And the documents don't capture any other. Um, instances, uh, except this one of him, of Prigozhin making that comment. And we should remember too, I mean, the documents that we're seeing, you know, they're just the ones that Jack Deshera took and shared with friends that we were able to obtain, right? So, I mean, we're seeing slices. There may be uh, in U.S. intelligence reporting more about this, but we just don't know. I guess my question is, you know, we've talked a lot about what it, Prigozhin is thinking what his incentives are, but what's in this for Putin? I mean, why is Putin putting up with this other than just the maybe convenience of having different military centers of power? I mean, presumably at any moment, Putin could march in and nationalize the Wagner group and throw Prigozhin in jail. And if that's the case, why hasn't he done it? And if he hasn't done it, is it because he doesn't think he can do that because he thinks that the Wagner group would, would rebel? And if that's the case, then should we maybe up our, you know, priors as to the potential fall of the Russian government if Putin is scared of this mercenary outfit that he has built up and supplied and, and patronized? 
Well, I think that the, the, the simplest answer probably to why he puts up with it is he probably doesn't feel like he has much of a choice. They need the Wagner group. I mean, you know, and, and Prigozhin has, you know, resources that he could call on from other places, other places where he's deployed, you know, and, and I think that, you know, Putin to some degree, I mean, he, you know, he does have these other, these other centers of power from people who enable him, but, you know, it's not as though he's beholden per se to like, you know, like people often make the mistake. I think that, you know, like the oligarchs so-called could like gang up on him and convince him to change. No, the oligarchs exist largely by his grace and favor and his largesse. I mean, he is, he's a fairly, has a fairly, I think, authoritative control of the government. And so I have to presume that the reason he doesn't come in and put a stop to it is because he needs Wagner. Also related to that, you see this in the documents as well, where the Russian Ministry of Defense officials are hearing Prigozhin air these complaints and criticize them and say he's not, you know, we're not getting enough supplies from the Russian military. And privately, they're saying like, crap, we got to figure out a way to counter this because like he has a point, you know, he may in fact be right that we're not supplying him properly. So I think that it, it, that also probably gives you some sense that Putin may have realized that he can't afford to shut Prigozhin down, that he just, he needs him. It's just an absolutely fascinating set of dynamics. And it really reminds me of what we're seeing with these kind of far-right Russian nationalist bloggers and how they've engaged, where they have come out in many cases being very openly critical of the Russian military, how they're pursuing this campaign, but not in a way that necessarily drives towards a more peaceful outcome or an effort to wind up the campaign. If anything, it's driving towards more dramatic action and criticizing them for not pushing hard enough. Not quite what Prigozhin's doing, but insofar as he's trying to secure more control, lay the strategic failures at the foot of these other people, that's pretty interesting. But I guess a lot of it boils down to where you think Prigozhin thinks of himself. If he's in, if he does want to, if he wants to be an oligarch of 2010, meaning he gets to run his global multi-billion dollar empire and not have to traipse through the battlefields of Ukraine, maybe that means he will be a, could be a force for peace. But if he's just a vehicle for Putin, then that seems a little less likely. You know, this, you could see this playing into a system where Putin's consciously playing factions against each other specifically to be able to shift blame from one to the other without um, having to face really taking much blame himself. It's just a fascinating state of affairs, and and we will uh, really have to see where, keep an eye on it as it plays out, as I suspect we're not the last time we've heard from the erratic Mr. Prigozhin. Thank God, because he's so entertaining. That Telegram channel, it is something to behold, I have to say. Amazing. Well, jumping from one erratic multi-billionaire businessman to another erratic <laughs> multi-billionaire Excellent. businessman. Nice. Very nice. Let us Very let nice. us turn to America's Prigozhin, Mr. Elon <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's entirely fair to, to either of them, really, but, but that's okay. Scott, aren't you the general counsel of lawfare? You can't say stuff like that, man. Come on. Uh, it's an opinion. It's okay. We're going to get, get gawkered. Twitter employees are overworked and starving, too. So the analogy. Yeah, fits. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes, Exactly. We've seen Mr. Musk come under another critical media cycle, something he's very familiar with uh, these days, but over the past week, specifically relating to the ongoing Turkish elections, which we saw um, take place earlier this week and are now going into a runoff phase that's going to last for the next two weeks. I don't know if it's officially declared a runoff, but that's where the projections have it going at this point, at least. And we, Elon Musk defended a decision by Twitter to essentially limit the ability of certain accounts and limit certain posts that have been posted relevant to the election in ways requested by Turkish authorities and implicitly Turkish authorities associated with with the Erdogan government. Although it's worth noting, at least according to Twitter's account, they're actually judicial officials substantially driving this in Turkey, not necessarily uh, executive branch officials, um, although Erdogan has allies in the Turkish judiciary as well that, uh, you know, so that doesn't mean that's not necessarily driven by him to some extent. And this originally came to the fore because we saw Elon respond critically to a tweet by commentator and rampant Twitter, Matthew Iglesias, saying essentially, isn't this crazy that Twitter is doing this? Doesn't this seem like a departure or something they said they wouldn't do anymore, which is catering to these political forces? And Musk came out and made a very straightforward, if a little bit ham-fisted argument saying, well, of course we did this. They were threatening to shut us down entirely. So of course we had to accept uh, that certain more limited requests for censorship we had to implement or else we wouldn't have any access to Twitter whatsoever. 
In Elon's defense, something I don't like to do, but something worth mentioning, this isn't an unfamiliar argument, right? We've seen tech companies and social media platforms make arguments similar to this in a variety of different contexts to justify why they reach these sorts of arrangements with foreign governments about censorship. And to say something that I really don't like to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, is there is some legitimate range where foreign governments are allowed to set up their own rules about what social media can and cannot put forward. You know, other quarters of the world don't have, First Amendments don't have such robust conceptions of free speech as we have. Now, human rights still are supposed to guaranteed a strong domain of, of free speech. But, you know, it, there is some realm, I think we all accept for some legitimate regulation by foreign governments in this area that does require tech companies to engage with different jurisdictions differently. The real question here is like, well, how much was this legitimate and how much was this clearly Erdogan trying to do things going to throw the election in his favor? Let me turn to you first on this, Alan. Elon Musk has come under a lot of criticism for the impression that he's doing something really different here, that he is really charting to approach these issues in a way that reveals kind of anti-democratic sentiment, I think is a lot of the commentariat or Twitter line, although I don't know how serious that is, but tying it to his own kind of domestic political views which are very controversial in the United States. Do you think that's fair? Is what he's doing here really that different from what Twitter's done in the past and what other social media companies have done? Is it just his ham-fisted Twitter response that's the problem, or is there something more fundamental at core? Yeah, so I, I I think it is different than what Twitter has done in the past. I think Twitter has generally tried to push back more proactively and tried to slow walk foreign government complaints. And it tried to be more creative than I think Elon has particular interest in being about these sorts of takedown requests. Now, is this a matter of degree or a matter of kind? I think it's more a matter of degree, to be perfectly honest. And I think there are other tech companies that, you know, people seem perfectly happy with. Apple comes to mind as maybe the most uh, notorious that makes all sorts of compromises with terrible regimes all the time. I mean, China here is the, is the biggest example. I mean, Google has done so to, to a somewhat lesser extent. So I, I, I do think that, you know, if we were just to, if we were just to kind of ignore the Elon Musk part of this, there would still be a legitimate debate over whether or not Twitter acted in the right way. But I don't think it's an easy or obvious debate. Right. Um, because there really is, you know, if the alternative is Twitter being shut down entirely in Turkey, um, now query whether and how quickly Turkey can do that. But, you know, presumably they can do that to at least some extent. It's not obvious on a kind of means ends basis. What, what, what's the right call? There are nevertheless two aggravating factors, I think, in this case. The first aggravating factor is Elon Musk himself. He's just really not good at the public part of this and of making anyone confident that Twitter has any idea what it's doing. This is also, of course, made much worse by the fact that he came into Twitter as some like free speech warrior. And it's just so bizarre to see the same person who releases the Twitter files to then turn around and say, well, you know, I don't know. Turkey was mean to us on a phone call. So like, obviously, we had to censor all the stuff in the middle of maybe one of the most important elections in modern Turkish history. Um, so there's like a real ad hominem nature to Elon. Now, that I think doesn't actually matter in determining what the right course of action is. But it does create some justifiable pot shots that we can take against Elon Musk. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, Elon's chaos Muppet approach to running Twitter just has some real drawbacks. You know, I, one of the one of my favorite features of contemporary journalism reporting on Twitter is that at the end of every story involving Twitter, there's usually some version of this line. We reached out to Twitter for comment, but they no longer have a press office, and all we got was a poop emoji email. <laughs> like, yep. that's insane. And also, you have to put that paragraph at the end of every story about Twitter because... Like, they don't have a press office, and they send poop emojis back to journalists. And he, and he wants you to know that they don't and that they do that. Exactly, exactly, right? Um, and, and, and so, you know, these kinds of issues are difficult in the best of circumstances. They are made so much harder when you have a company that is just not being run in a serious manner. And th I think... The, the point is not just that this is bad for Twitter. I mean, it is, but who cares? It's, it's that if you're going to have something that plays the role of a town square, it has to have enough infrastructure to just do the basic, I don't know, town square hygiene. And part of that is some mechanism to think 
through requests from governments and especially semi or fully authoritarian ones to take stuff down and to think about creative ways to push back on that. Even if at the end of the day, you say, look, we thought about it, we tried, but it was very clear to us that we had this choice to make and we made this choice and like, you know, we're, we're happy to just, we're happy to justify it um, in a sober way. But Elon Musk's Twitter is quite literally incapable of doing that because yet again, their PR office has been replaced by a poop emoji auto response. You know, as I'm, as we're talking through this, I'm like, <clears throat> I'm tempted to ask, well, is it a sign of Elon Musk's maturation as the head of Twitter, which of course he's figured out he's a place that he's got a new CEO. <laughs> Spoiler. Don't, don't no. say, don't say Elon Musk and maturation in the same maturation. sentence, man. That that's just, it doesn't, it doesn't scan. He's maturating like a fine maturing. wine. <laughs> it's going to be my, my two year old has maturated more than Elon Musk. <laughs> I think I'm answering my own question, which is like, Oh, okay. So is he basically saying, Hey, look, this is kind of the way we have to do business because foreign countries do get to set the rules to some degree and how we operate and it seems like the answer is like probably like no not really it's like he's more just worried about like you know losing access in a, in, in, in a country and maybe this is more about the bottom line i don't know how many subscribers twitter has in turkey and if he lost all of them would it be you know a, a significant blow to the bottom line but you know the the company i mean i think quite literally can't afford to be losing subscribers right now in mass because of just the massive debt that he's, he's taken on. And, and I'm, I'm struck too, just by the, you know, the hypocrisy of it, of this person who claims to be some kind of radical first amendment absolutist, you know, why not use this as an opportunity to say to the Erdogan regime, no, we're not going to do that. We are a, a global town square. And, you know, if you don't like it, tough shit uh, and force a fight. I, I don't know. That would have been, I think more, I guess, in keeping with what I think he's all about, which is these radical ideas of free speech and free expression. But I don't know, maybe he's also just like super distracted this week. And, you know, it, it's just, it's, he's like, he's just such an incredibly erratic person. I know that like, you know, there's somewhere in there, there is like a central operating code that does govern him. And maybe Kara Swisher is like the only person who truly understands it in my industry. But like, I just look at this guy and I'm like, I, I don't, who knows if he's going to put his pants over his head one morning or something. I, I, he's just so all over the place. <laughs> I have like trouble like deciphering his decisions and trying to put them into some kind of, you know, logical uh, um, format. I just, I don't know, man. I don't know. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I, I will double down on my original sin in my introduction and make an effort to defend Elon on this. Although I think I'm not defending Elon so much as just putting him in the same all around fairly shitty bucket. I think most tech and social media companies engage in this issue. And it really boils down to this, I think, which is that particularly social media platforms, I'm going to particularly focus on them. Their calculus here is entirely one of their own making an assignment of value. And they have said, as Elon did very expressly in response to, to Matt's tweet, oh, well, we couldn't do this because the value to the world of the vast majority of Turks having access to the Twitter network of and the various you know services it provides and average communication, that is outweigh, outweigh, that outweighs the cost of withholding this access to the specific information requested by the Turkish government. That's a totally made up calculus. And it is one that is entirely self-serving for these companies. And Twitter is not the only one to break it out. 
Elon's Twitter is not the only one to break it, break it out. Twitter has done it in the past. Facebook has done it in the past. Lots of social medias have done it. Social media companies have done it in the past. TikTok is trying to do kind of the inverse of that argument now in their very aggressive public relations campaign around the United States uh, to push back against you know it being deplatformed here in the United States, essentially. And the honest to goodness truth is that I actually don't think that that calculus is is that accurate in these cases necessarily, or at least it needs to be critically engaged a lot more closely. You know, A, what is the actual social benefit of a platform like Twitter if it cannot touch on the issues that are essential to democracy? And if you accept that a regime can rule those out, then I think its overall value for all users really drops a lot. The fact that I could still get cat videos doesn't really mean a lot. Um, if you're going to accept that this is a, a socially beneficial you know, corporate enterprise to some extent. But then on top of that, you're really understating your own leverage. If the Erdogan government had been experienced by Turkish voters of shutting down Twitter four days before the election, the Erdogan government would have suffered electoral pushback. I'm pretty pretty confident of that. You have a lot of leverage over this, Elon. That's kind of absurd. But that's true of all these social media companies accept a lot of these limits. Like China, maybe, frankly, you have one of the better arguments, although I don't find it persuasive, because China is probably in a position where they could set up a Twitter or Facebook or other social media alternative. And that's kind of what they did when a lot of social media companies did eventually push back. Now they've got their own whole own ecosystem there. But most governments can't do that. Most governments aren't going to. And there are going to be political ramifications if they even try. So these companies, I think, so often just use these made-up value assessments to get out of situations, do things that are beneficial for them from a business perspective, while staying under this kind of very, you know, moralistic lens that social media companies like to cast on themselves. And I think it's mostly bull. Um, And I I just don't think Elon's that different in employing it. He's just kind of more frank and less clever about it. And, you know, and to bring it back to Alan pointing out, you know, that whenever journalists make an inquiry, they, you know, PR and Twitter sends back a poop emoji. The blowback to this decision that Twitter made has been pretty significant, including among some high profile Turkish Americans and and, and, and celebrities, etc. And it doesn't really seem like Elon really gives a crap, right? I mean, as, as I wonder if like, the reputational damage of something like this to Twitter isn't really his concern, which if that's the case, and even if it's not the case, frankly, I do wonder still, like, what is his long-term goal with Twitter? Because I don't, something tells me it's not global town square. Like there's something else going on here. And I don't know whether, I don't mean to make that sound sinister. I just genuinely don't know what his plans are, but this seems like a very telling moment if you know, he suffers the obvious blowback, which is you're a, you know, a hypocrite on free speech, doesn't really seem to care all that much. And I know they're saying that they're fighting some of the court orders and things like that. But, you know, maybe this is telling us about sort of, you know, maybe this is Elon telling us like, no, this is where I'm going. Like, I'm, this is, you know, don't mistake me. Like, this is actually part of the plan. Like, I, I will kowtow to governments in order to keep, you know, the network running for whatever purposes I have in mind. Exactly. And it's it's just a fascinating this this appointment of the CEO that I think a lot of people, including us, have kind of cast aspersions on and being how serious. It's actually kind of a seminal moment for the company in a lot of ways, right? Because the thing Elon's able to avoid is just actually operating like a business. Because for him, it's a hobby. It's something that he can take big losses on, evidently, and be comfortable with, at least for all outward appearances. He's hopefully losing sleep over it because it's just an ungodly amount of money that he's willing to throw away into this without a clear avenue out. A CEO with any sort of control of anything along the lines of what Elon's suggesting he's going to give to this woman who's taking on this position is going to have to think about that differently. Even if they don't have shareholders to report to, even if it's just Elon, they've got employees to pay. They've got their own salary to cover. They've got to show a successful business model. They've got their own reputation, for God's sakes. Like They're hiring a pretty serious person coming in from other work in the space who's going to want another job after this, after Elon you know, deep sixes the company. Uh, And so that's going to be a real point of tension. And if maybe Elon's willing to hand over that authority, frankly, that's what he's done with his other companies, Tesla, SpaceX, like he is by all accounts, uh, you know, public, and I've known people at these companies have talked about it. Elon is just a very weird person who's kind of airdrops in, messes around, often very much on the technical science, like product development side, which is what he says he wants to do with Twitter as well, in very intense and frankly, fairly disruptive ways, but in ways that might have positive outcomes to some extent. But all the business side gets left to the people whose job becomes managing Elon uh, and then managing the business. And maybe that's direction we're moving in. And then maybe Twitter starts to look more normal um, because this is just so abnormal and so hard to reconcile with any sort of organizational or institutional interest. This could be a moment where Twitter actually takes a turn. Uh, It's all about how much of the reins Elon's willing to give up, I think. 
I uh, I opened a Blue Skies account today, or a Blue Skies, Ooh. as we're calling it. Somebody, you were one of the vaunted invitees I to guess Blue so, Skies. And a very, a very nice person sent me an invite code. And like people, are, it's so funny because people are- It was Quinta, and she invited you before us. We're furious. <laughs> it was not Quinta. I will not reveal my source, but it, it was not Quinta. <laughs> but people were on there today being like, oh God, this is like Twitter 2008, 2010, when everyone was just more chill and relaxed. And like, I don't ever remember being Twitter being that chill or relaxed, but that's kind of a nice thing to think about. It's like, oh, what if it's just like the nice social network and it's just fun? And it's it, the fact that it, like that it was it kind of felt like a little bit of a breath of fresh air. Maybe that won't last, but I don't know. That's kind of good. And I like the interface. It kind of reminds me of Twitter. As someone who rode the Mastodon hype train up and down, I am yeah. very optimistic that Blue Sky. You, you were take... shoveling the coal on that train for like a solid year and a half. I there. was. I mean, look, <laughs> I, I, I am. I am optimistic that the combination of Mastodon's decentralized model plus Twitter's engagement at all costs user interface might actually, and your algorithmic newsfeed might actually, Blue Sky may be it. We'll see. I mean, look, it looks like Twitter, you guys. It does. It does. It looks like Twitter. Well, I, I wouldn't know, Shane. Blue Sky, what the hell? <laughs> Isn't it marvelous how much it looks? Look at my name right really here. Does. Look you at know this, what? Look at Some this son of a heart. bitch already took Shane, by the way. I thought I would get early <laughs> enough in there and it'd be like, at Shane, they're like, sorry, taken. There aren't that many of us, damn it. At least I got Shane yeah. Harris, so that's fine. But, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. By the time I get in there, I'm going to be Scott Richard Anderson. I'm going to do the whole name. Every other Scott, <laughs> Scott R.R. R. Anderson. Exactly. It's going to be infuriating. infuriating. <laughs> well, from one media mess to another media mess, let's talk about the town hall. And I, I will just say, and I can say this because Shane already dropped an F-bomb, so we've earned our uh, explicit content rating today. You guys um, got to keep that up. That is part like, of the tradition. Like 15 <laughs> no minutes, babies. 15 <laughs> minutes into the town hall, I got on our Slack and just wrote, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah. uh, so what was I referring to like a sailor? Yeah. So I think as everyone knows now, Trump had a town hall on CNN last week where CNN went to New Hampshire and intentionally or not found a bunch of MAGA supporters, put them in a room with Trump and then sent out poor, poor Caitlin Collins, who is, you know, otherwise a perfectly good reporter. Um, and I'm sure in any other context would have done a great job. But uh, sadly, when you're dealing with Donald Trump and you're trying to fact check him in real time, it is very, very ineffective. And we heard, you know, an hour of just peak Donald Trump. I mean, within 30 seconds, he was lying about the rig 2020 election. He may have re-defamed Gene Carroll again, which is very impressive since just days before he had been found uh, liable for defamation and sexual assault. So I don't know, hopefully she's about to sue him yet again. And it was just, it was just the worst of Trump. Uh, And, you know, I, I think coming after Trump's somewhat desolatory announcement of his candidacy, it really, I think, cemented the fact that Trump is still very much in it. He's still very energetic. He still has the magic. I mean, he's still in his own sick, twisted way, an absolute genius uh, of propaganda and of using the media to his advantage. He's clearly the the front runner uh, for the Republican nomination, you know, not just in terms of polling, where he's, I think, 30, 30, 35 points in front of DeSantis, but also just in in vibe, frankly. And, you know, we could talk about what he said and what it says about Trump. I don't think there's that much to say there. I mean, it's nothing that we haven't known for more than six years now. So I really want to talk about CNN's decision to hold this town hall. Um, They've been criticized quite severely, um, including by themselves, including right after the town hall. There was a very strange moment after the town hall where – Anderson Cooper was saying things like, if you never watch CNN again, we totally get it. Um, it, was an, it, was an odd, it was an odd moment of self-criticism. Uh, you know, I, I will say I'm very much on the burn CNN down wagon. I'm still quite angry. But uh, Shane, you're, you're the journalist. Can, can, what, what were they thinking? Boy, one's tempted to say, like, who the hell knows what they were thinking? Or one's tempted to say, uh, you know, hey, he's great for ratings. Um, look, from a pure journalistic standpoint... Having the front runner for the Republican nomination in a town hall makes perfect sense. But this is Donald Trump. 
this is not this is a unique individual with whom we in the press and CNN included has six plus years of direct experience, which should have told anyone that this is exactly what he was going to do. Um, I was talking with a friend at CNN before the town hall who will remain nameless, who was saying, you know, like, well, there's some people who think that he's kind of doing this because he wants to try to maybe like, you know, soften his image a little bit and kind of try and recapture some of the, you know, the, the women voters that he, to be clear, will absolutely need to have in the handful of counties that are going to decide the next presidential election if he's the nominee. I mean, that may have been total wishful thinking. Like, this is very much like the frog and the scorpion thing. It's like, you know, CNN was the frog that gave the scorpion a ride and he stung them. It's like, it's in his nature. He is going to do this. And and of course he was going to do it the day after he was found liable by, for, by a jury in New York for sexually assaulting E. Jean Carroll. Like, one would have thought that, like, you know, the ounce of humility that might be in there would have said, like, maybe this is a bad idea to lean into that. Nope. Because he doesn't know how to do anything else. And the crowd was clearly <clears throat> with him. I have real questions about how how CNN, if at all, vetted that crowd. Because they can take steps to ensure that, like, you know, who is in the audience. I mean, maybe they're undecided voters, but whatever. So, you know, I, I just, I don't know. And I, and I think that, you know, it, it's... This whole event for me, like I actually said to this this same friend, actually, I said, I feel like in a way you kind of, you guys kind of walked the plank tonight for the rest of us in media because now CNN or any other network would be perfectly defensible for them to say, we are not doing a live television interview with this person. We're not doing it. We're not giving him the platform again. We'll do an edited interview, maybe. And certainly print interviews with him are totally different because you, you know, you have much more control over what he's going to do. But in a live session like this, he is going to do precisely what he did. He's going to turn it into a chance to not just steamroll the, the moderator, but to, to air all of these falsehoods all over again. And I think that my industry is not at all prepared for how to cover him as the likely Republican nominee. And you know, we struggled with this for years when he was president about how to correct his lies, whether to call them lies. And I think that January 6th was kind of one of these final points where it's like, if you had any remaining doubt that this individual poses a unique threat to American democracy, you have it now. It is in evidence now. He was impeached for it. Uh, he may be criminally indicted for it. And you don't just get to overlook that because he's the Republican nominee. Like we don't pretend that his history doesn't exist. And so I think that this town hall put into very stark relief some really hard decisions that the press is going to have to make, not just about how we cover the campaign, about how we cover this individual in the campaign, who I think, frankly, it, it needs to be covered differently than other people. He just does. So I'm going to shove Chris Licht and CNN in the same bucket as Prigozhin and Elon Musk and that I'm going to defend them uh, re reluctantly. Uh, but, uh, you know, in some ways, I'm, I'm sure they'll all get along and hang out. Because uh, I'm not sure I'm convinced that this was the horrible thing for democracy that a lot of people think it was. I think it was not well executed by CNN for one reason, which is the audience, as you've already alluded to, Shane, right? If you came to me and you said, I, Shane Harris, you know, prominent national reporter, have the opportunity to sit down with Donald Trump and do a one-on-one -on -one interview, no questions barred, no advance notice of question, which is my understanding of the terms by which CNN agreed to with Trump, although maybe I misunderstood that. And we are able to confront him with the fact that he's lying, present contrary evidence, which Caitlin Collins did, which is not one of the most effective delivery because of the context and the audience, but nonetheless, she did do that proactively, which I think you do have to do to be responsible. I would 100% say, yeah, if you do that an hour on live TV, I think that's newsworthy and probably worth doing. Maybe it's not worth doing every week between now and 2024, um, but certainly at this point where there is an open question saying, well, what does Trump as the candidate look like now? Is he pivoting? Is he changing? The fact that he is not and he's the same guy we always thought he was, is actually really newsworthy and really important to understand for voters, right? Both pro and against, particularly against in a lot of ways. The, the fatal flaw here, I think, was the audience. And, and it's interesting to ask yourself why right? Like 
on the one hand, I think it's a problem because it made it really hard for Caitlin Collins practically to actually effectively rebut him, right? That's certainly true. And, and, and you would have to find a better way to do this. This is why, by the way, if you notice presidential debates, they really structure applause time and audience responses now very carefully because they know how disruptive it can be. And they, CNN totally forgot that, even though they're one of the people who pioneered it. But I, I really don't know if even the audience actually played in a way that was clearly in Trump's favor. On the one hand, you're saying, hey, this is an audience that really likes Trump. So I don't like watching as somebody who doesn't like Trump because it makes me angry to see and make me nervous about the state of our country to see all these people cheering on horrible things that he's saying, right? But they knew they were supporters. Like it is not a representative cross sampling of the country. They're Trump supporters. And then you say, well, who, who, what is this really doing? I think it's just stoking Trump on. It's a big reason why he leaned so aggressively into his prior positions, right? And yeah, the Trump camp, camp came out and said, oh, yeah, this is great. This is exactly what we want. But they say that after everything Trump does. It's something they have to do because it's a cult of personality. They have to say he's strong, he's effective, he's flawless. Usually you get little leaks around the margins, right? But I actually think there's really something to what a lot of Democratic strategists and other Republican strategists have said, which is that CNN, for better or for worse, may probably in a way it's going to hurt their bottom line as a business. They showed us who Donald Trump really is, and he's the same person we know now as he always was. And that people don't like that. That's a loser. And now we get to have an hour of audio and video that we can pull clips from to show that he's the same guy and play it in ads from here until 2024. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing because that actually is who he is. The one thing I think people I think should be really pissed about this are other Republican nominees like Nikki Haley. You know, forget Rod DeSantis hasn't even declared yet. Like this far out is too early to start declaring a presumptive favorite. And CNN needs to give the same opportunity to other Republican nominees and candidates at this point, in my opinion, who at least show some substantial polling like Nikki Haley does, although it's far below Trump and DeSantis. Because remember, this far out, we've seen Herman Cain take a lead in the polls. He's on Marco Rubio. We've seen lots of people. Republican primary electorates in presidential election years are very chaotic. Trump probably has a lot more staying power, but we don't really know. He's just a unique figure. And when you start giving special status like this, if you're only to give this to one candidate, you're giving that candidate a major substantial advantage. That would be anti-democratic. That would be wrong of any media organization. So I hope CNN makes similar offers to other candidates, uh, although I haven't heard of them doing that. But if they do, then I'm not sure giving Trump an occasional platform, especially in this moment where we still need to confirm Trump is who he was, it's actually bad for electoral process that ultimately he is going to be a candidate. And we have to make a decision on him and people need to know, see what they're voting for and what they're voting against. Look, Scott, I think that's a very, I think that's as good of a defense of CNN as you could, you could make. And I am open to the possibility that at the end of the day, this town hall in isolation is net good for American democracy for all the reasons that you said. I just don't have a lot of confidence that that is in fact CNN's game plan. This strikes me as a little bit too much three-dimensional chess for profit-seeking 24-hour cable news networks, which is to say until CNN has, through a pattern of behavior, shown to me that they are exquisitely sensitive to the concern about giving Trump a plenty, you know, just a bunch of earned media coverage because it is good for their bottom lines, um, I will take the more maligned interpretation that even if they convinced themselves that this was, quote unquote, good for American democracy, they really did this because it was good for CNN's ratings. And the lack of care that clearly went into it, for example, you know, outsourcing the crowd to New Hampshire, the, the New Hampshire GOP, that lack of care does not make me comfortable that going forward, CNN will not be pulling stuff like this more often because, you know, let's face it, Donald Trump makes for better television than Sleepy Joe. That's why we need to see an hour-long town hall with Asa Hutchinson in front of a whole a whole yeah. hall of Asa Hutchinson supporters. If we can find that many or however many we can find, maybe the audience will be a little lean, but give them the floor time, take the ratings hit. I 100% agree with that. If we don't see that, then it's a big issue with CNN. But if you give each candidate the platform, and probably Joe, and Joe Biden too, obviously, although he's got his own advantages platform-wise, I don't know. I think I think it, it balances out a little bit. I also think it's just, I mean, to your point about, I, look, it's putting aside the question of, whether it's good for democracy, whether it's good for CNN. Although as a coded to that, interesting reporting came out that I think Chris Lick brought Oliver Darcy, the media columnist, <clears throat> who was very critical of the coverage and kind of gave him a bit of a dressing down, it sounds like, um, which is itself problematic. And like Chris Lick does not need the internal division that is growing in the network to his leadership. But just as a purely, like, because I know we're not going to talk the politics, but just to say one moment about the politics, as a window into how Donald Trump is thinking and how he's behaving, 
like, I don't think that this should give anyone good feelings about his chances of becoming president again. Like he is not correcting for the obvious deficiencies exactly. that cost him the election, cost him reelection for only the second time, you know, in American history as a president ever come back from a defeat. He's not changing. He's a, if he had come out and said, it's, and again, this would never happen, right? Like, you know, like this is just, this is an impossibility, but it's worth a thought experiment. If he'd come out and actually in some way tried to signal a change of thinking or a change of heart or, 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 or again, crazy to think, even contemplate it, that might have been like a moment where you could say, okay, well, maybe his fortunes have changed. To me, all this, I just looked at this and said, it's the same guy as he was before. And voters said no. And the more he keeps going out there and reminding people that I'm the one who got Roe v. Wade overturned for you, he's, he's even more, you know, shooting himself in the foot. I mean, it's so interesting that he's trying to distance himself from Ron DeSantis by saying like, well, I wouldn't sign the six-week bill. It's like, you're telling everyone I'm the one who ended abortion, legal abortion in America. Like voters and particularly women are going to remember you did that. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. As a last point, I mean, whenever the head of a network or a publisher of a, of a paper or whatever is, is you know, giving a kind of a dressing down, like it's purported that Chris Lick did Oliver Darcy, it raises the obvious questions about whether, you know, you have actual editorial independence in your news organization. And, you know, look, there are things that as members of a news organization, you have to be careful not to do that. We have standards of the Washington Post that we do not criticize our colleagues. You know, we don't go out and do that. And maybe... Some of this, what Darcy said, perceivably to go over a line at CNN. I just think that, like for for a network that is already straining, I think under some criticism about the direction that Chris Licht is going, it's it's going to be difficult for him if he is seen as trying to basically. And I'm not saying this is what he's doing, but if he's perceived as trying to tell his reporters you know, shut up on the criticism of the network, don't question our decisions, that's gonna just foster more ill will inside the organization, which is not something that I think Chris Licht wants at this point. So it's, it's, it's a very tumultuous time at CNN. And I think that it's not a great look to be seen as saying to your media critic, who is there to, after all, criticize the media of which you are a member, to cool it and basically to pull punches. I couldn't agree more. Whatever happened to ombuds people? I miss a I mean, good ombuds a, person. A lot of them were, you know, the editors didn't like them <laughs> and told them to go bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, we will have to leave the conversation there for now, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with an object lesson or two or three to ponder over in the week to come until we are back in your ears. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So this week was Eurovision. The annual height of Western civilization. And I want to use this opportunity to plug what I still think may be the single funniest thing that the New Yorker has ever published, which is Anthony Lane's 2010 just bravura piece on Eurovision titled Only Mr. God Knows Why. It's really, I mean, I'm a huge Anthony Lane fan and I I can't get through the first four paragraphs of that piece without like breaking down into hysterical giggling laughter. And I've read it maybe 45 times. There's <laughs> a particular phase, shimmering incontinence pants, where I just lose my mind. It's yeah. so funny. And what I love about it is it's this like perfect Anthony Lane combination of beautiful writing, amazing snark, like fundamental love for the material and it has aged so well. And I think that every year around Eurovision, we should all do a reading of Anthony Lane's magnum opus. It's so good. I like it. I will put it up there with it's decorative gourd season motherfuckers <laughs> from McSweeney's as <laughs> my designated also, annual fall reading. This is my designated annual Eurovision. Oh, reading. I will so add good. a watch to that which is the highly, highly underrated for how absurd and hilarious it is, Eurovision Song Contest, colon, The Story of Fire Saga, the straight-to-Netflix Will oh, Ferrell, yeah. and, uh, and what's her name, Rachel McAdams uh, comedy. It is very it's stupid, pretty funny. but absurd about like a very set of Icelandic sweet, folk actually. singers. Yeah. It's very sweet, very and sweet. it's really funny. 
Pierce Brosnan kind of like steals the movie in a lot of ways with funnier performances. It's genuinely actually a worthwhile watch. I watch it in the depths of the pandemic. Maybe now that society is reopened, I won't feel the same way. At the time, I quite enjoyed it. So as somebody who has uh, drifted around the periphery of Eurovision culture over the years, uh, it it was interesting to see it in play. Is Eurovision like one day or do they build up to it like the World Cup? I think they build up to like the World Cup, okay. but the last day is like a big day with a lot of performances. Okay, okay, okay. So it's like Star Search where you have to make it through several performances. Yeah. Okay. It's like the Apollo where people boo you off stage, <laughs> if I recall correctly, or if we have you the hook. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a large vaudeville candy cane. Exactly. Exactly. If only. That would be the dream. <laughs> that would be phenomenal. I feel like that would start some new world wars in Europe, but perhaps not. Um well, for my object lesson this week, I, as we've already alluded to, was on vacation last week. I love vacation because I get to sit down and read things, uh, especially because I did not have internet access for much of this vacation. And I read four books, so oh. two of which were over 800 pages. I was really quite impressed with myself. I like jammed through some nonfiction and fiction. Great. I got to finish the Expanse saga, the last two books of that after years of dawdling. I read a great nonfiction book I'll be talking to the author about called Mad Men and the White House this week on the Lawfare podcast worth checking out by Woodrow Wilson. But the book I'm going to recommend is phenomenal. And it is really, you know, perhaps best classified not as work of sci-fi, but a work of literature of sorts. Insofar as I became aware my wife's book club read it months ago, and she said, you would really like this. And I was like, nah, you guys always read serious, serious literature type things. And she's like, no, 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 it's a sci-fi book. And it was the winner of the Hugo Award in 2020, A Memory Called Empire by Arcady Martin. Um, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal space opera sci-fi book that's actually really about diplomacy and a really, really interesting like diplomatic drama. I would frankly love to read some like historical fiction or something that does as good a job with diplomacy as this book does. I think it's just phenomenal and has in lots of fun sci-fi multicultural element written by a woman, Arcady Martinez, a nom de plume, who's got a PhD in like, I think, Byzantine historical culture. And so it is actually a book about the Byzantine empire and how it expanded into Albania, if I recall correctly, but she just trans- translated it all into the far future. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal, super interesting. The sequel just came out this year, which I am going to turn to as soon as I uh, get another book off my plate. So the, I highly the, recommend that. The sequel is Memory very good. Called Empire. Oh, you've read the sequel already? Yeah, yeah, yeah I've People read yeah, yeah, yeah. About it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, Hannah, Hannah, my wife, got me onto them, and they're excellent books. It's amazing. Uh, they're phenomenal. I think I think the sequel won the Hugo Award this year, if I recall correctly, wow. or at least was nominated, which is a pretty, pretty impressive feat that only a few authors like N.J.K. Jemison and Anne Leckie have done recently. And so really, really phenomenal. Worth checking out. I can't wait for the extended HBO drama series to inevitably disappoint me. But until then, I look for I strongly recommend the book. Shane, what do you have for us this week? <clears throat> I have uh, a true to form. I have a new TV show to recommend for everyone. Uh, it's actually about to drop this week on Showtime. It's called Ghosts of Beirut. Uh, it's a four-part limited series, and it is a both a fictional account interspersed with actual like documentary footage and documentary-style interviews with real people telling the story of a man named Imad Mugnia, who many people will not know who this is, but before 9-11, Imad Mugnia and his Islamic Jihad organization were responsible for the deaths of more Americans than anyone but Osama bin Laden. Uh, so if you think back to 1983, in Beirut, you'll remember the car bombing of the U.S. Embassy, as well as the Marine barracks that killed more than 230 Marines. And Maud Mugnia was behind that and would go on for, for over the decades to launch all kinds of terrorist attacks and attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq. And he became this almost mythical figure uh, for Mossad and for the CIA. He went by various names, including Radwan and the ghost and the father of smoke. And they do the, this great job in the beginning of the show, like building up this kind of legend. But it is basically all about this guy and you know how Mossad and the CIA finally kind of tracked him down. And in addition, what's interesting to the show about how they sort of use actors to portray Mugnia and Mossad and CIA operatives, and then they intersplice it with talking head footage from people who basically were involved in tracking him down, is that they follow him over the course of his life. And like, Mugnia is kind of a sympathetic character. Like you don't sympathize for what he's doing, but it's, it's an empathetic portrayal. It is very much trying to look at the story through the eyes of this person, you know, who 
was young and in Beirut, uh, uh, you know, during the, during the, the the violence here in the early '80s, you know, became hardened against Israel, hardened against the Americans, and became, as he saw it, a freedom fighter and someone who tried to have a family, who tried to have children, whose marriage fell apart, who find who found a woman he loved. I mean, it's like he's kind of this. It's a very romantic kind of portrayal in a way, and again, not glorifying him remotely. But I, it's rare that I've seen a show try to handle someone who is, you know, by all accounts, I mean, a villainous character, but to try and humanize him. And the hunt for him is like the stuff of spy legend. I mean, it really, really is. So uh, it's four parts. You don't have to commit like, you know, months of your life to it. Uh, really, really good. It's by um, Greg Barker and um, Avi Asaharov. Uh, who've done some uh, some really interesting work here together. So yeah, Ghost of Beirut Showtime drops this week. Check it out. I am super excited about this. This looks fascinating. This is like a case study that I feel like anybody who came up in the early 2000s, early mid 2000s studying national security and released politics, totally. you followed this case and was aware of it because when he was killed in 2008, I think it was yes. like by a car bomb in Damascus. Yes. It is like, not to give up the ending, but it doesn't end well. Yeah, Sorry, I mean, yeah, exactly. Spoiler alert. They get him in the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It is wild uh, that's fascinating i'm I'm looking forward to this and also uh having googled it while you're speaking stars dermot Mulroney, which gives us a great chance to play my favorite game is it Dor- dermot Mulroney or dylan mcdermott uh, yes. and the answer is i will never You'll be able to tell know. and i will never get it right yeah he exactly. he, uh, he he i won't i won't say anything about his character but he plays a real person uh in, in the show and he's in it and uh yeah. Oh, and for those who are uh, want to see me interview the creators of the show as well as one of the actors in the show, um, there's a Washington Post live event this week that you can check out Ooh. as well. By the time you hear this, it will have already occurred, but you can go uh, Google that or go to WashingtonPostLive.com and, and see the interview. Oh, phenomenal. We're looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of our other Lawfare contributors. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security. And while you're at it, be sure to leave a rating review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osban of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan, our special guest, Shane Harris, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye.